My name is Pete Hartle. I'm from Colorado Springs, Colorado. Moved there in 1994. The Army moved me there in 1994. I do have a wife. Her name is Carrie. Miss Carrie, if you'd stand up so people can see. The only thing I love more than my wife is embarrassing my wife. They didn't see you in the back. There you go. <laughs> that woman is my best friend and my favorite person. We are dumb together and we have fun together. Thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to be here. It, it is, I've only been here twice, but it is such an encouragement to be here. I love this church. Uh, the people here are, are just encouraging, uh, loving, friendly. There's only one unfriendly person here, and I brought her with me, so I can't really <laughs> ding you for that. We have fun. But I appreciate the hospitality. I appreciate the missions house. That is just beautifully done and decorated. It is very comfortable. We've just enjoyed ourselves immensely there. Yes, I do have a wife. We have two, two grown daughters, two beautiful daughters. We have two sons-in-law, four grandbabies, and we'll talk about them here in a minute. We're going to be in the book of James this morning. And if you're here on Friday, we were in the book of James. You might be thinking, this guy really likes the book of James. And I realize there are 65 other books in the Bible, and I'll get around to reading those at some point. <laughs> I'm kidding. I also appreciate that this church gets my sarcasm, because some people don't. <laughs> but here within the last handful of years, James has really become one of my favorite books Amen. of the Bible, if not my favorite book in the Bible. And it's been said that James is like the Proverbs of the New Testament. Have you heard that said? If you haven't, I'm going to pretend like I made it up. But if you've heard it, then, <laughs> then okay. Okay, good. It's just full of, of practical guidance and practical commands and instructions for us to live by. I love the book of James. And I was given a Bible study on the book of James just not too long ago. And as I was going through it, I thought it might be beneficial to start putting messages together because it's been such a blessing to me. And, and obviously I started here and here we are, James chapter 1, verse 1 this morning. Just going to read a handful of, of, of verses uh, before we get started. James chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Father, we do thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity to be in your house this morning, and what a blessing it's already been. God, I thank you for, for the, the music that we've heard and the music that we were able to, to sing and, and be a part of. Lord, I thank you for Sunday school. God, we thank you for this weekend that we've had to celebrate graduates, Lord. And now as we look forward to Memorial Day, Lord, and just like it's already been said, those that gave their lives so we could enjoy the freedoms that we have in this country. And Lord, for your son who gave his life so that we could be saved. Lord, glory. My sins are all pardoned. My guilt is all gone not because of anything that I've done. God, I pray that you'd be with us over the next few moments as we spend some time in your word. God, I pray that you would just get me out of the way. Lord, if we don't hear from you this morning, then we're wasting our time. Lord, I pray that you'd speak through me, that you'd give me the words to say, Lord, and give me a calmness and confidence, Lord, not in myself, but in you. And Lord, ultimately, we just pray that your will would be done in every heart that's here. God, we love you. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I'm going to need some help really quick. So, Riley, I'm going to get you. Hopefully, I can trust you. You don't have to even stand up, but I'm going to give this to you. I need you to do one thing for me. When I come over here, I want you to one, one spray, one spray. Can you do that? Okay, okay, go ahead. I'm going to shake some hands this morning. And please understand that this hand sanitizer, it's not for your protection because I feel great. I feel great this morning, all right? So it's not, for, for, it's not for your protection, and really it's not for my protection because you all, for the most part, look like a fairly clean, hygienic bunch, all right? This hand sanitizer is for my wife's protection because I know my wife, and if I shake hands and don't hand sanitize, she's going to get nothing out of the message here this morning. She's just going to be thinking about the germs crawling all over my body. So that's what that's for. How you doing? I'm Pete, and I love grilled cheese sandwiches. You're up. Here we go. There. When do you graduate? Okay. How are you? I'm Pete. I'm a big Chicago sports fan. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Give me an extra one. coming over here. How are you? I'm Pete, and I'm a grandpa. More specifically, I'm a papo. Papo. Here you go, last one, I'm done. And you can just give that to my wife. I really don't need it. I don't even know if this stuff works. You've been introduced to two people here this morning. Me, I'm Pete, and James. Here in the book of James, we're introduced to the human writer, the human penman, and this writer has a name, and his name is James, which then begs the question, well, who is James exactly? Because we're, we're familiar with a few Jameses in the New Testament. Well, who is this James exactly? And there's really two main schools of thought, two different camps that people seem to fall into. This is James, either believed to be the brother of James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, or James, the brother of Christ. Now, it's widely believed, and I fall into this camp, that the human writer of the book of James is, in fact, James, the half-brother of Christ. And if you don't fall into that camp, that's fine. We're going to talk about that here. We'll talk to that here in a little bit. But understand that if this is James, the half-brother of Christ, then that in and of itself is a huge deal. You see, James, the brother of Christ, wasn't always a believer. He was once a staunch rejecter of Christ. Now, I'm going to have you turn to a handful of portions of Scripture here this morning as we kind of set the table and before we settle in here in the book of James. So just bear with me. I'm going to have you turn to just a few places. The first place I'd like you to turn is to Mark chapter 6. And again, we're just kind of setting the table, understanding who James is and why this is a big deal if this is, in fact, James, the half-brother of Christ. chapter 6 and verse 1. In verse one. <clears throat> and it says, He went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples, disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and of Joseph, and of Judah, and of Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. 
We see Jesus' response, and we learn a little bit about Jesus' family from his response. So he says in verse 4, But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. This tells me that Jesus was, was without honor. Jesus was rejected, not only in his own country, but among his own kin, and even in his own house. We see further evidence of this in John chapter 7, if you turn there. John chapter 7 and verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry. Why? Because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world Jesus' brethren, their instructions to him were, depart hence, go from us. And where do they tell him to go? Tell him to go to Judea. And I don't know if his brethren knew that the Jews sought to kill him, but I don't think that was a secret. Go away from us, Jesus. Go into Judea. Go to your disciples. Show the world who you are. Why? Because of verse 5. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Go go away, Jesus. Go to your disciples. Show the world who you are, Jesus, because... We're not buying it. We see that Jesus' family, his immediate and extended family, had a difficult time believing he was who he was. But something changed. Something along, along the way, something changed in the heart and the mind, at least of James. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul writes, he says, But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. James had gone from a rejecter of Christ to being named as an apostle of Christ. Why the change? So why now the change? What what, what happened in the life of James that he would go from a rejecter of Christ to now an acceptor of Christ, being named by Paul as an apostle of Christ? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. And we understand when it says that he, that he was seen of the twelve, that would include James the brother of John, and James the son of Alphaeus, by the way. And verse 6 says, After that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. Paul's writing here, and he's giving uh, 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 living eyewitness examples of of those that saw Jesus after the resurrection. And he says that the, the, the greater part remain unto this present at the time of the writing of this book. But the verse goes on to say, some are fallen asleep. Verse 7, after that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. 
And it's believed that the James reference here in verse 7 is James the Lord's brother for a couple of reasons. Uh, uh, James the brother of John is already referenced in verse 5 when it says then of the twelve, so it really would not make any sense. There would be no benefit, no reason to specifically call out James. But also, James the brother of John was actually killed fairly early in the church age. It's believed to be around 44 A.D., and we see that recorded in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And it's believed by the time the book of 1 Corinthians is penned, James, the brother of John, is, is already dead. He's already been martyred. He's already been murdered. So calling him out as a specific eyewitness would really be of no benefit because what good is the word of a specific dead man? James, the brother of Jesus, when confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ, when confronted with the risen Savior, was forever changed. He was once a rejecter of Christ, now an acceptor of Christ. And not only was he an acceptor of Christ, we see that James became a prominent leader in the early church. Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars... Perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. And this would really line up with James addressing here in James chapter 1, verse 1, who he's writing to. He's writing to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. He's writing to the circumcision. He's writing to Jewish believers. We also see in Acts chapter 15 when there's this push from Jewish believers uh, that the Gentile believers needed to be circumcised that Paul and Barnabas and Peter, they all spoke out against this and so did James. And it was really James who put this whole matter to bed. One more place I want to have you turn before we settle in, in the book of James, Acts chapter 15. Not only did James become an acceptor of Christ, he became a pillar, a leader in the early church. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 13, and keep in mind, this is three chapters after the murder of James, the brother of John, by the hands of Herod. This is three chapters after that. Acts chapter 15, verse 13, and after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, men and brethren, hearken unto me. Skip down to verse 19. Here's what James is telling those Jewish believers. Wherefore, my sentence is this. That we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. We don't need to trouble them with this issue of being circumcised. But what? Verse 20. But that we write unto them. That they should abstain from pollution of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from things, uh, excuse me, and from blood. James says, we don't need to worry about this. We need to write to them about those things that are going to hinder their walk and relationship with God. Understand, James was a prominent leader in the early church with much influence and much authority. And many believe that he was actually a pastor in the early church. Back to James chapter 1, and this is where we'll be. Thank you for bearing with me this morning. Again, we just want to kind of set the table a little bit. But why is all of this important? Why does this matter? Why is it important for us to know these things about James, the penman of the book of James? Well, I want you to pay special attention to how James introduces himself in the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. How does James introduce himself? A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? 
this is the James that most believe it is, he could have introduced himself as James, a pastor, a pillar, a leader in the early church. You think about pastors now deserve honor, right? They, they deserve respect. They should be listened to. They're a big deal, and we don't have enough these days. But pastor in the early church, that'd be even a bigger deal that less people could claim to be. James could have introduced himself that way. Not many could make that claim. And people might have been impressed with that introduction and thought to themselves, wow, we better pay attention to this guy. He's a pastor in the early church. He's a leader in the early church. What he's writing is important. He seems like a big deal. That's not the way he introduced himself. And if this is the the James that many believe he is, he could have introduced himself as James, the brother of Jesus Christ. The earthly brother of Christ, even fewer could make that claim. And if my math checks out, and I think it does, only three other men could make that claim. And people might have been impressed with James based on that introduction and thought, wow, the half-brother of Christ, this, this person grew up in the same house as our Lord. His words definitely deserve our attention. He is an important guy. But he didn't say that. He placed the attention on what was the most important thing to him. Not that he was a leader in the church, not that he was the brother of Christ, but that he was a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in James' eyes, that was the most important thing that he was. And that was the main thing that he wanted people to know about him. James wanted us to know, first and foremost, not that he was an apostle or a preacher or earthly brother of Christ. Why? Because those things weren't the most important thing to him. One commentator put it this way, brother to Jesus was the designation that James might have used, but he preferred the more modest title of bond servant. The slaves of such a king are nobles. Yes, I'm a servant, but look who I'm a servant to. I'm a servant to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. People should listen to his writing authored by the Holy Spirit. Of course, we understand that because of who he was, a servant of God and of Jesus, this title, this qualification is what gave him a right to speak and a claim to be heard. And while there's debate as to who James is, and we have that debate because James really says nothing to point to himself. That's why we have this debate. There's debate as to who James is. There's really no debate as to who James is because he tells us clearly who he is. He's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I tell you this morning that people are going to know you by what's most important to you? People know me by what's most important to me. I love grilled cheese. I'm a Chicago sports fan, and I am a popo, and you know these things about me because I told you these things about me because they're important to me. James introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ because that was the most important fact that he wanted people to know about him. We come in contact with so many different people over the course of our lives, over the course of our years. How many of those people know you to be a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? I guess the question here this morning is, how long do people have to get to know you? How long do you have to rub shoulders with somebody? How many interactions do you have to have with somebody before they're confronted with the fact that you are a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it the first thing you want people to know about you so you make a conscious effort to make sure that they know that you're a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it the last thing you want them to know? Or are they never confronted with the fact that you're a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, I'm afraid that we're afraid, 
And instead of following the example we see of, of, of James here in James chapter 1, instead of following his example, making it the first thing we want people to know about us, we follow the example of Peter after Jesus' arrest. And we want it to be the last thing that people know about us. We tell people nothing of God, nothing of Christ. If they suspect us of being one of those religious people who read and are, are crazy enough to believe and, and strive to follow the Bible, if, if, if they suspect us of being a follower of Christ, we downplay the importance or we deny. And if that isn't enough, we'll start to take on their actions, their conduct, their language to try to further blend in. Can I tell you this morning, we give Peter a hard time. How many times do we shy away from bringing what might be negative attention to ourselves by proclaiming and then actually proving to be followers of Christ? We judge Peter. Oh, Peter, you, you were there with Jesus and you saw all that Jesus had done and all that Jesus had done for you. And what a coward you denied. We are Peter. We've seen what Jesus can do. We've seen what Jesus has done in our lives, and how many times are we the cowards? We judge Peter, but let's just be honest this morning. Many times we are Peter. We should strive to follow the example of James, ensuring it's one of the first things that people know about us because that's the most important thing about you this morning if you've accepted Christ as your Savior. And James puts it out there immediately, telling the reader exactly who he is. You might be here this morning, you know, Brother Pete, I don't want to tell them. It's too much in their face. I don't, I don't want to offend. I don't want to be pushy with my beliefs. I'm going to show them with my actions. First of all, now is not the time for subtle Christianity. Amen. And second of all, the world has no problem throwing their beliefs and their lifestyle, who they are in your face. They have no problem offending or being pushy with their beliefs. Now's not the time for us to retreat. <clears throat> I work part-time at our church. Uh, here a couple years ago, we took a part-time position uh, in the church, and it's been wonderful. I also work part-time for Lockheed Martin out at Shriver Space Force Base, east of Colorado Springs. And I don't know if it's the space industry, I don't know if it's the military uh, sector, or if this is just where we're at as a people nowadays, but it attracts a certain lifestyle of people. And I'll be sensitive this morning for any sensitive ears uh, here this morning, and, 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 and I don't want to sound mean-spirited or cruel, but I honestly don't really know what to call that group at this point because they keep adding letters to their acronym. And I, again, I don't want to be mean-spirited. I just want to make sure we know who, who I'm talking about. But this, this type of work, for some reason, seems to attract uh, 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 that lifestyle of people. And again, it may be the military. It may just be where we're at in the world. So people have started in their email signature blocks, after their name, they've started putting their pronouns. We're familiar with pronouns. <laughs> They'll put their name and then the parenthetical, he, him, she, her, they, them. And I've told my, my, my coworkers, I've told my, the shop that I work in, I've told my, my, my superiors that if this ever becomes a, a company-mandated thing where Lockheed Martin or the Space Force or whoever comes out and says, you need to start putting pronouns in your email signature block, I'll do that, but I'm going to get the ones that James used. You see, James used pronouns before it was even a thing, right? So my signature block, and, and I've explained this to them, and we'll see how that goes. Pete Hartle, that servant of God, 
that servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how I want to be known, and that's how I want to be addressed. And can I just say, if Bob wants to put a she, her tag after his name, that does not make him a her. Just calling yourself something doesn't make it so. There have to be facts to back up that claim. And I knew you'd agree with me because that's just truth. But can I tell you this morning that just saying that we're a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, that doesn't make it so. We can be just as guilty claiming to be something that we just aren't. There's a great deal of individuals out there that are claiming the name of Christ and then living with no facts to back up that claim, and they're no more a servant of God than Bob is a girl. Two different approaches that Christians can take, two extremes, and both of them are flawed. First one is that we tell everybody about our beliefs. There's those Christians that tell everybody about their beliefs, tell everyone that they're a follower of Christ, and then live a life so totally contrary to what we find in the Word of God. And there is so much of this going on out there, and I know that you know this. I've talked before at our church about the fact that when people discover that I'm a Christian, and more specifically a Baptist, there are immediately... Scores of preconceived notions that I'm up against. Stereotypes that I'm up against. And can I say this? Stereotypes are typically earned. People find out I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a Baptist. I had somebody that I worked very closely with find out that I was an independent fundamental Baptist, and they knew what that meant. And I was up against notions of hypocrisy and cruelty and coldness. And I've had to fight against those, and I'm sure you have as well at times, against those preconceived notions placed there by those claiming the name of Christ and then not living at all with the heart or the mind of Christ. And then there's the other extreme. Tell no one about our beliefs and then try to point them to God by our actions. I believe that's called lifestyle evangelism, but here's one of the problems with lifestyle evangelism. Christians, we Baptists, we don't have the market cornered on being nice. And to our shame, a lot of times it's the opposite. Just being nice, just showing kindness, while those are great things to do and things that we should involve ourselves in, that does not by itself point people to God. I know a lot of nice people doing a lot of nice things that have rejected Christ and they're going to be spending an eternity in hell. And I don't say that with any joy in my heart at all. Nobody nices themselves to heaven. And listen, I get it. You know, we want to to walk, you know, we want our our walk to back up our talk, and it should, but there has to be talk for our walk to support. They must both be present, working together, complementing each other. People know you by what you tell them, but we also know that that only goes so far. Eventually, they're going to know you by what you show them. We know this. I told you I love grilled cheese. I talk about it. People know I love grilled cheese. People around my church know that after Sunday night service, it is grilled cheese night. And I'm all for fellowshipping. That's all great and fine. But eventually it's time to go. Yes. And my beautiful wife is going to go home, and she's going to make me a beautiful grilled cheese sandwich. And people know this. When I leave the church on Sunday night, hey, enjoy your grilled cheese. Have a good grilled cheese night. They know. Because my grilled cheese walk backs up my grilled cheese talk. 
I very sneakily started a, 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 a tradition around our church, the, the Sunday night before Independence Day, which this, this year it's on the second, not Independence Day, that's always on the fourth. The Sunday before. I don't want to confuse any South Dakotans here tonight. <laughs> kidding, kidding. Sunday night after church, we have a, a, a cookout. I've hijacked that and I've named it Grilled Cheese Night. Our Grilled Cheese Night is July 2nd this year, and I love it. People in my church send me pictures of grilled cheese sandwiches <laughs> because they know me. Grilled cheese, grilled cheese with pulled pork. Two grilled cheese. <laughs> this is a family in our church on a Sunday night all eating grilled cheese. They send me that picture because they know. Somebody sent me a picture of another grilled cheese. Somebody sent me a picture. These, you can get these at Costco. Grilled cheeses you put right in your toaster. They didn't buy me any, but they sent me the picture. <laughs> this here is Grilled Cheese Night 2022. This is a grilled cheese in front of Pike's Peak while the sun was setting. You have not seen a more beautiful picture than what you're seeing right here. Listen, people know that I love grilled cheese sandwiches because I tell them, but my walk backs up my talk told you I'm a Chicago sports fan. I talk about it to anybody that's interested in listening. I understand this brother is not. <laughs> but can I tell you, my neighbors who some I have never, have never talked to, they know I'm a Chicago sports fan. Do you know what this is? Does anybody know? This isn't Wrigley Field. That would be too heavy for me to hold. Do you know what this is? Yes, sir, in the back. Oh, that guy. I got a new best friend. This is a W. It's also a flag. You see, when the Cubs win a game, they're in last place in the National League right now, so they're helping me out with this illustration. When the Cubs win a game, what they do at Wrigley Field is they raise that W flag. That way, people driving by the field, they see that flag. Oh, the Cubs won. When the Cubs win a game, I put that flag outside my house. Why do I, why do I have it here with me? I haven't needed it at the house. <laughs> But I've talked to neighbors, and I've explained to them where we live, and I introduced myself to one neighbor who's from that area. He's like, oh, you're the Chicago fan from down the street. Well, I never told him I was, but he knew that I was because my walk backs up my talk. I told you I'm a popo. And if you haven't noticed, and you just don't get it until you start having grandbabies. If you haven't noticed, I will do what I can to weave my grandbabies into any conversation I have with any person at any time. And if anybody shows the slightest bit of interest in my grandbabies, I have pictures. And I'm so glad we don't have to carry around wallets with pictures nowadays. I got them all right here because I have four grandbabies, but a thousand pictures. I know some of y'all are sitting in the back. Just know they're adorable. <laughs> so my granddaughter, Camilla, can I tell you she is the craziest baby I've ever met in my entire life. She is nuts. <laughs> it's my granddaughter, Harper. She is the sweetest little baby I have ever met in my entire life. And I could talk about her for hours. This is our one grandson. His name is Adrian. This is my birthday buddy. My daughter went into labor 
October 22nd. That's my birthday. She said, I use that as motivation to get this thing done. And she did with about 17 minutes to spare. And this young lady is Everly. She's our first granddaughter. She's the one that made me a Papo. She gave me the name Papo. I can talk about my grandbabies all day. Grandbaby picture. Grandbaby. 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 Oh, that's a picture of my wife. How did that get in there? That's terrible. <laughs> Sorry, we'll just scroll right by that one real quick. Grandbaby. 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 Grilled cheese. And I tell you unashamedly here this morning that when it comes to grilled cheese, when it comes to, to sports, when it comes to grandbabies, my walk backs up my talk. Amen. I wish I could stand here and say that unashamedly, 100% of the time, my Christian walk backs up my talk. Understand here this morning, others need to know who you are. They need to know the most important thing about you. And if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, that is the most important thing about you. There was to be a title for this message. It's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James leaves no room for doubt about who he is. Being a servant of Christ is really what people need to know about you, not grilled cheese sandwiches or sports or your grandbabies. I love all those things, not in that order. That's not the most important thing about me. James gives you his name, then immediately tells you who he is. We need to follow this example. It should be the most important thing to us, one of the first things that people know about us, and then our lives should solidify that claim. Others need to know who you are, but can we take it just one more step further here this morning? You need to remember who you are. Others need to know who you are, but you need to remember who you are. You know, we can be so forgetful at times, and very often, very easily, we forget who we are. You need to remember that if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Servant here in verse 1 comes from the Greek word doulos, meaning bondservant or slave. It gives the connotation not of just someone who works for another, but of someone who belongs to another. You need to know and remember who you are and understand that once you call on Jesus to be your savior, you belong to God. You are his servant. He is your master and he's the one calling the shots. Why? Why do I need to remember this? Why do I need to remember that I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you need to remember that so you can be obedient to verse number two. Verse number two says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. James introduces himself and then immediately jumps into telling the believer that we are to count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. And that might seem like an odd transition, but it's not. I find it interesting that James doesn't use the word if we fall into diverse temptations. He says when we fall into diverse temptations because these temptations are going to come. And understand that these aren't temptations like we often view temptations. This isn't a temptation of Satan or a temptation to sin because there's no joy in that. This is referring to those things that come our way, those trials, those tribulations, those difficulties that might tempt us to just throw in the towel as it pertains to our faith. Those things that would try or tempt our faith. The saved life, the life of a child of God, a life of a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand here this morning, it's not free from hurt and pain and trials and tribulation and suffering. 
I appreciate Sunday school this morning, and I love when, I love when Sunday school and, and the morning service kind of go hand in hand. We didn't know that. I have no idea what anybody else here might be dealing with here this morning because we're so good at showing up and putting on our fancy clothes and our fancy face, and we have no idea what anybody else here is dealing with, but we know that the life of a child of God is not free from hurt and pain and trials and tribulation and suffering. But James says that we can count those things all joy when we fall into divers, all different kinds of trials, temptations to our faith. How do we do that? How do we count it all joy when we do that by remembering who we are and who we belong to? When we remember who we are and who we belong to, then we can count it all joy because we belong to God. And as belonging to God, we recognize He is our master, and we know some things about our master here this morning. We know that our master is good. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in Him. Psalm 107, 1, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. For his mercy endureth forever. We know that our master is good. We know that our master is in control. Our master is sovereign. Job chapter 42 verse 2. I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Psalm 135, 5 and 6. For I know that the, that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all deep places. We know that our God is good. Our master is good. We know that our master is in control. We know that our master loves us. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We belong to a master, and we know some things about our master. He is good. He is in control. He loves us, and our master has a plan. And listen, this is either truth or it's not. This is either God's infallible word or it's not. We either believe this or we don't. And if we believe this like we say we do, then we can count it all joy because we have a master who is good who is sovereign, who is loving, and who has a plan. And part of that plan is found in verses 3 and 4. We can count on all joy remembering that we belong to a good, sovereign, loving master. Verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. We don't have to mope and, and complain and, and, and just doom and gloom when these trials come, but we can rejoice because we know that God has a goal. He has a purpose in mind. It doesn't mean that we're happy about the suffering, but it means that we know that he's working through it. God has a purpose, and we may not even see the whole purpose, and that's where faith comes in, trusting God, trusting our master. This is part of that trying of our faith. But one purpose that we can see and do know is verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. One commentator put it this way, patience is the fruit of such a trial, and the grace of patience is worth the trial it may cost to procure it. We may not enjoy it, but it's worth it. I look back at my life and trials that I've had to endure and go through. I look at, at my wife and I and our marriage and trials that we've had to go through together can I tell you, they weren't enjoyable trials, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't give them up for anything. 
I wouldn't change it for anything. I look at our church back home and, and difficulties that the church has gone through. It was a difficult time. I would not change it because I've seen what God has done through it. Another commentator said, The grace we receive during said trial provides us with the proof that our religion is sound, and this evidence encourages us, helps us to patiently bear and persevere. I look back at trials in our family, in our church, and I see God's presence, and I see God's power. And you know what that does? It gives me strength for the next one that's coming. These diverse temptations, when we remain faithful, they produce endurance. You know, I hate endurance because the only way you can get endurance is by enduring. <laughs> we know this, that the trying, this trying produces patience. And we know that this patience leads us to spiritual maturity in verse 4. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The word perfect here is from the Greek word teleos, meaning to grow or complete. God tests our faith to prove it, to grow it, to perfect it, to mature it, to complete it. And God does this by producing in us patience. And it's those diverse temptations to our faith that produces that patience. Patience grows us. It helps us to be grown-up Christians. But patience has to be earned. Can we just admit, as, as children of God, sometimes we're a bit of a spoiled bunch? And maybe it's because the most important thing that we receive, the gift of salvation, is exactly that, a gift. It wasn't anything we could work for. It was given to us by God. All we had to do was ask and put our faith and trust in Christ. Maybe it's because salvation is, that, that is a free gift that then we just expect everything to be handed to us by God. God gave me this most important thing. Everything else should be handed to us. Well, patience doesn't work that way. Patience is not a free gift that God gives us. It has to be earned. It has to be worked for by being faithful through trials and through suffering. You see those Christians, and they're just out there living their life for the Lord, and they are steadfast and faithful, and they are just focused on God, and, and, and nothing seems to throw them, and trials come their way because they come all of our way, but they just remain steadfast and faithful and steadfast and faithful, and you wonder, how did they get there? How did they get to that point? Trials, tribulations, testing, diverse temptations to their faith. They had to earn that patience, that maturity. And then you see those Christians freaking out about every little thing. Something small happens and they are running around in circles with their hair on fire. And it just everything throws them and there's no maturity there. There's no patience there. There's no endurance that's been built up through testing. So either in that person's life, no trials have ever come, which we know that's not the case. Or it's that that Christian hasn't been obedient to verse 4, letting patience have her perfect work because they're too busy flipping out. These temptations, these trials, these tribulations, can I just say this morning, they're not a bad thing. They grow us up. And God gives those trials to those that are his own for a purpose. And through that, we can count it all joy. God has a plan. We're not just facing trials and temptations for no reason. You know, God just doesn't heap trials on us to see how much we can handle. God already knows how much you can handle. God knows your breaking point. 
He doesn't give us trials for no reason. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 says this, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than that, excuse me, than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can find joy in our trials, knowing that they're working to make us more like him, and that they're being used to ultimately bring praise and honor and glory to the one who deserves it. Amen. Our master, our God, is good and sovereign and loving. Even through our trials, we know that he has a purpose for it, and he is faithful every step of the way. The trials that we face should produce steadfastness. It should produce endurance. And the end result, if we let patience have her perfect work, is that we're mature, we're complete, according to verse 4. We're perfect and entire, wanting nothing. We cannot be what God has called us to be without suffering. But God uses those trials to bring us to maturity. I came across this quote as I was putting this message together. It says, The road of sanctification is paved with stones of suffering. And that's okay. It's okay if we remember who we belong to. Remember who you are. You are a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust your master. Remember that he is good and sovereign and loving and that he has a plan. Others need to know who you are. You need to remember who you are, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads here this morning. Maybe you're here today, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've accepted Christ as your Savior, but those around you wouldn't know it. Those you come in contact with wouldn't know it. Can I tell you this morning? They need to know. And maybe you're here this morning in the midst of a painful trial in your own life, and it can be easy in those trials to forget who you are. You need to remember who you are, who you belong to this morning. And I know the message hasn't been such, but maybe you're here today and you'd say, I'm not a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've never accepted Christ as my Savior. Can I tell you here this morning, he's not your master, but you can get that taken care of even here this morning. Father, we do thank you so much for this time that we've had together, Lord. And God, I just ultimately pray that your will has been accomplished, Lord, that we've heard from you. God, I pray that you would just work in hearts and lives and marriages and homes. God, that you would have your will and way during this time of invitation. Lord, we pray that you would just be uh, uh, with the, the, the next few moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.